Hello, thank you for joining us for another episode. We have a special one this week in the form of an analysis of Toy Story 3, which is a screenplay I have wanted to cover from the very beginning, but with the upcoming release of the fourth film in the franchise, we decided to record this one in order to preserve our judgment and not have it affected by anything that might happen in the fourth film. Toy Story is very family-friendly, so I feel that this week's conversation was quite easygoing and laid back. But I also think we cover a decent amount in this one, particularly focusing on the evolution of the characters over the series of films, the main themes and questions that are raised in the third installment, and provide some interesting facts about some of the story's development. Just by way of introduction, we begin with the first 10 minutes dedicated to talking about how the concept of Toy Story 3 itself came about. And then after 10 minutes in, we have a recap of the original Toy Story and Toy Story 2. And these are quite brief, but if you don't want to listen to that, you can skip to about 24 minutes into this audio track. And then we get straight to the analysis of Toy Story 3 itself. The themes and messages that are portrayed in Toy Story 3 are extremely positive for the next generation. It focuses on kindness, sharing, family, community. And so I think it's a really worthy film for us to take a look at. And finally, I apologize in advance if we fail to pronounce a couple of the names correctly, especially Michael Arndt, spelled A-R-N-D-T. I just can't get it to roll off my tongue not exactly sure how he pronounces his name. Anyway, without further ado, let's get into the episode. Thank you again for listening, and please do subscribe and spread the word if you can. Hello, and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Alan Vasquez. Today we are going to be discussing Toy Story 3, screenplay written by Michael Arndt. And this is the third film in the franchise, which started with the first Toy Story back in 1995. And at the time was the first CG animated film. Toy Story 3, in my opinion, is probably the best one of them. For me, I think it kind of closes neatly this arc between Andy and you know his favorite toys. Mm-hmm. So the original two Toy Stories came out before the year 2000, so we won't be looking at them as part of the 21st rewrite, but we'll allude back to different elements of those original stories right? and how they shaped the third installment. Mm-hmm. So to begin with, I think it's interesting, we've talked in our episode on Coco about how Pixar writes their stories. It's not done in the traditional manner of someone sitting down coming up with an original screenplay idea and writing it out, 120 pages it and handing it into the studio. Right. It's often a collaborative endeavor, involves lots of acting, trying things out, bouncing story ideas off each other. Yep. And Toy Story 3 in particular had a long history. So it was almost given over to Disney and their Creative 7 studio, which had been a project that they had used to try and maybe take away some of the power from Pixar. And that was quite contentious because Toy Story was Pixar's flagship film. It was what made them famous worldwide. It was a huge success. And everyone at Pixar was 
very concerned about Disney having full creative control, which they contractually had yeah. as part of the rights which had been sold. But luckily that project ended when Michael Eisner left Disney. Mm. And there had been different stories pitched for Toy Story 3. One of them was that Buzz was going to end up getting returned to Taiwan for repairs. I heard about this one. Yes. That sounded kind of fun. It's, it's an interesting premise. Yeah. And again, the classic adventure and all the toys have to travel to Taiwan to go and save him. Right. And they were going to introduce a female Buzz character, kind of like Jesse was introduced as the female equivalent of Woody. Got it. That's interesting. But that project never got off the ground. I believe there was another one which got a bit closer to the Toy Story 3 story in that they were put up in the attic and then it was going to be about their adventures up in the attic. Mm. And again, that story never really took off. So after Michael Eisner left Disney, Pixar were free again to develop Toy Story 3. Uh, the two films had come out in 1995 and 1999 respectively, I believe. Yep. And so it wasn't until way into the early 2000s that there was even a chance of of this being done by Pixar. Yeah. The Pixar crew went to a retreat at Tamales Bay in Marin County, which is up near San Francisco where Pixar is based. Mm -hmm. Well, they went to the cabin where the first Toy Story was conceived. They made a toast to Joe Raft, who had been the head of story on Toy Story 1, and then Lee Unkridge, John Lasseter... Andrew Stanton, Pete Doctor, Darla K. Anderson, Bob Peterson, and Jeff Pigeon got to work watching the first two installments of the film. Right. This gang of creatives, as it were, they said that what they wanted to do was make a third installment that was worthy of the franchise. They couldn't right. think of any third film which had been good except for Return of the King. Right. And so why did Return of the King work? because it was the final installment in this epic story mm -hmm. so that it made Fellowship at the Ring look tame in comparison. All of the battle scenes are exaggerated. Everything becomes exaggerated by Return of the King and yeah. clearly was written with having three installments in mind. Yeah, so making it a conclusion would make it worthy of the other two because in a way it's kind of interesting that there was only like a four-year gap between one and two and there was what 11 year gap between the second and the third and i think it's because well like you were mentioning the disney pixar yeah some internal thing. politics so there was some of that involved but i really do feel like they really took their time and like you say they really wanted to make this really good it's almost impeccable in its storytelling the way it sets up things and pays them off the way it's all driven by character and its themes and it's a very sort of sophisticated film for a kid's film. And it uses its history to its advantage. So the connection that we have to the original characters, it uses that to its advantage to kind of tug at the heartstrings a little bit too. Yes. Because there was enough gap that, you know, the kids that saw the first one are now adults like myself that can relate to that theme of leaving your childhood behind, which mm -hmm. I think is its main theme. Exactly. So... I would have been six when Toy Story, the original, came out. Yeah. And then 21 when Toy Story 3 comes out. Most people of my generation are going to be within similar parameters. Yeah. Something like 
the fact that they're either going off to college or have mm -hmm. already been through their higher education or started work or whatever it is, but yeah. they're going to be in their 20s if they'd been children uh, when the first Toy Story came out. Yeah, I was, um, yeah, I think I was like seven or eight when the first one came out. And I remember we saw it at the drive-in. And I just remember being so excited. Like, I'd never seen anything like it. You know, it was just this whole new world. And not only was it just a whole new world, but the story was really good. You have these two really great characters and Woody and Buzz, who are very different from each other, but they complement each other really well. And I remember... I loved Woody and my brother loved Buzz, so it was perfect. So at Christmas, I got the Woody doll and he would get like the Buzz Lightyear action figure. It holds a special place in a lot of people's hearts. So when the third one comes, using that as a way of connecting the theme that they explore, it just made it that much more powerful, I think. Absolutely. So it really did it justice, having the weight. It might not have been exactly how they had intended it, but retroactively, they turned it into this epic story mm -hmm. and toy story 4 is going to be coming out soon at the time of recording it'll be out by the time we post this episode yeah we haven't seen it yet yeah so we're just going to be talking about the original trilogy primarily toy story 3 and then there's going to be this additional coda as it were to the to that right. epic story that was told over three parts yeah uh, some of the things that are really worth noting down about the original retreat where they came up with the story idea uh -huh. is that within the first day they had come up with the idea that it would be about Andy growing up, that the toys would go to daycare, and that Buzz would have a demo mode. So, <laughs> so these right. are all the three essential elements of Toy three Story. Great three great ideas, yes. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, Andrew Stanton drafted the treatment, Uncridge then worked with Aunt to... Um, to work on the script. But then, obviously, there's a lot of Pixar stuff going on as well. As you can see by the finished product, there's lots of visual gags. Oh, yeah. And the characters were pretty iconic, so I think it must be really fun to be a, a screenwriter. Aunt is well-known for having written Little Miss Sunshine. So mm. he's got a good way of, of working with characters and... And juggling multiple characters. And, exactly, yeah. And also tugging at the heartstrings a little bit. Mm-hmm. Do you want to do a quick reminder of the original Toy Story and Toy Story 2? Just what sure. happened for people who might not have watched them for a long time? Yeah, so Toy Story 1 tells the story about these toys who come to life. So this is the world. Toys are alive. And the toys' purpose is to bring children happiness. And the story is centered around Andy, this really young kid whose favorite toy is Woody until Buzz Lightyear enters a picture, which is this brand new cool space toy that Andy loves. So Woody feels very threatened and becomes very mm -hmm. jealous. Andy's room itself starts changing from being cowboy themed yeah. to space themed. Yes. Woody feels himself being pushed out. Yeah. So Woody slowly becomes a little bit, uh, yeah, he, he's threatened by Buzz's presence. And this kind of eventually leads to Woody counteracting that with some shady things that leads them both uh stranded in the neighbor's house and so it's up to them to get back to the house before andy because they're moving away so they have to come back before they move away to the new house so that was toy story one yeah and they end up with the evil neighbor sid right so the opposite world to 
the safety and yeah. paradise of Andy's room is this neighbor, Sid, who tortures toys, blows them up with fireworks. Right. Woody and Buzz get picked up through the uh, the claw mm. in in the in Pizza Planet, which is mm. where the iconic aliens are introduced as well. Yeah. And they play a critical role in Toy Story 3 as well, yes. saving the characters. One thing I really loved from the first script is that these aliens are just described as way too cute in the script. <laughs> <laughs> That's so awesome. That, that was enough to go by. Yeah. What we'll see is this constantly recurring usage of the, the opposite world. Mm-hmm. So there's a hell-like place in Toy Story 1, and there's going to be a, a hell-like place in Toy Story 3. Maybe Toy Story 2 is maybe more of a purgatory or an alternative kind of mm. opposite world but all of them have their downsides they're not ultimately these toys are going to go back to andy and that's right. the connection they have and also one thing i i think in the first one woody actually breaks the code and actually breaks character and actually talks to it as a way of kind of you know teaching him a lesson which i it's one of my favorite moments from the film too the first one sets this world up with the toys and how their purpose is, you know, the most loyal thing. And another link to 21st Rewrite episodes. This is entirely a Steve Jobs-esque mindset. The mm. interaction between Steve Jobs and Pixar early, oh, yeah, yeah. in their early days mm-hmm. and Apple's concept, the driving force of creativity behind Steve yeah. Jobs, his his idea that objects serve a purpose for humans and mm. the, what's important is how we interact with them and they should be designed for the best type of interaction and so all of these toys have these inherent characteristics right. because of their design and also maybe what the kid himself or herself projects onto the the toy that's something i want to think about in terms of toy story 3 this comes up towards the end is Woody this noble and loyal character because that's what Andy always believed he was? Or is it something inherent in Woody? We we never may know, but it's, it's mm. quite a fun thing to think about. And that really comes from Steve Jobs. With, so we looked at his life in our, our first episode. Yeah, and, and that makes sense because he was very heavily involved with Pixar's creation. I think one of the funnest parts about watching the film is seeing how Andy interprets the toys and how they are in real life or we know when he mm-hmm. leaves the room because you know you have Mr. Potato Head, you have Rex and you have him. It's really fun to see how he interacts with these toys because I remember when I would assign certain toys to be the villains and some would be the heroes. So I th- I thought that was very accurate to childhood in general how a kid's imagination just turns these characters into something completely different and completely new. That world is established and it's got its rules, but I think that's what they utilize so well in the third part is the payoff of looking back at that childlike innocence and how a child interprets the world and how that gets lost Mm. during those formative years. And by the time we're teenagers, we've lost that ability to imagine and just play for the sake of playing. Yeah. Yeah, and number two introduces us to more iconic characters like Jesse and Bullseye and the villain, which was uh, Stinky Pete. So if you yes. need reminding in the second one, 
Woody is kidnapped by this toy collector. Mm-hmm. He was he, he ends up in the yard sale by accident, sale by and um, it turns out that. The reason why he kidnaps Woody is because he's actually a collectible, and he's he was this he was the star of a show back in the fifties. This really popular cowboy show, along with Jesse and Stinky Pete, and he's very valuable apparently. And he is the missing link to his collection because he already has Stinky Pete and he has Jesse. And he's valuable with his hat because when I was watching Toy Story three, there's a point where he loses his hat yeah. for a while. And I'm thinking, no, no, Woody, no, you can't lose your hat. (laughs) (laughs) We've been through this in Toy Story 2. You can't lose it. (laughs) You're worth a lot with the hat, buddy. Uh, Toy Story 2, the original draft, is interesting because it didn't have Jesse. And Bullseye spoke. And so Mm. that character was kind of split out into two, into Jesse, the part of that character that speaks. And Bullseye is really just a horse. Yeah. He he doesn't talk. Even though Rex, for example, and Ham are animals, they talk. But Bullseye is definitely an animal animal. He he acts like a horse and yep. can't talk. So and he's that, also very yeah. shy. I think that's one yeah. of his main attributes. So it kind of fits that he wouldn't talk. The fact mm-hmm. that they made him shy, actually, I don't know. He feels like a proper character, even though he doesn't talk. Yeah, and the fourth member of Woody's Roundup in the draft script is... Senorita Cactus, who is then removed from the final version, and and Jesse is introduced as a female version of Woody, essentially. And that was such a fun movie. We don't also just explore Woody's universe, but we also get to explore Buzz. Mm -hmm. So we get to we're introduced to yeah yeah, we're introduced to Zerg, which is a Buzz Lightyear's nemesis, and uh, we get this really fun bit at the beginning when uh, the toys are playing the video game. And they're fighting Zerg. And that's like a running gag of of Rex trying to beat Zerg. This film went through a lot of rewrites. Like you said, the the first draft was very different. And the fact that they made such an impeccable film and with the circumstances that they went through, because originally it was going to be a direct-to-video film, but they decided to really invest money, invest um, the time to make a feature film. Pixar doesn't play around even if it's a sequel. They want to treat it with full respect for the world and the characters. Uh, Finding Dory, for example. Yeah, that opened the gateway to all of these because it was a very successful film and the fact that it was not just a box office hit, but it was nominated for Best Picture at the Golden Globes for comedy, which at the time was like kind of incredible that a film like that was up there Mm -hmm. uh yeah it's all about quality with them you know they really just want to make sure the characters are great the story's great and that you're just gonna have a good time and also just very emotional films i think that's part of the reason why they resonate a lot the part in toy story 2 that i think really got to most people including myself is jesse's story and so you get to see the like you were saying there's a good and then there's a bad side of their world and the bad side is that sometimes well most of the time the kid will outgrow the toy yeah jesse's story starts to prelude what's going to happen in toy story 3 almost she she's become embittered and she's kind of warning woody that this is going to come right and then that theme is returned to in toy story 3 and becomes the the central theme yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and you know, we get a really great song in the second one, too, that kind of just 
visualizes all this, captures it visually, and the heartbreak that a toy goes through when the kid no longer wants the toy. And it kind of gets to Woody by the end of the second film. I think there's a part of him that deeply realizes and even considers not going back. Well, let's just say we have referred to Toy Story, the Toy Story franchises, kids' films, but in a way they're family films. They're, they're meant to be enjoyable for people of all ages, but especially accessible for children. Right. And Toy Story 2 does an interesting thing because it introduces theme of vanity and fame to to young audiences mm. what what that would entail if you become self-centered and think of yourself as a collectible and want to brush off all your clothes and look perfectly shiny and that's kind of entered into by right. woody is attracted to that for a second and woody's always had this little dark side he's definitely not the perfect oh, yeah. toy. i mean i if you look at toy story one yeah there's definitely darkness to him and mm -hmm. sort of his schemes to get rid of Buzz. Yes. <laughs> he, he, pushed, he pushed Buzz. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's a very questionable character at the beginning of Toy Story. I mean, we get a proper evolution with yeah, him. Yeah, that gives him room for growth. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, he, yeah. He starts off as the favorite, the most beloved toy in Andy's collection. And what makes this group cohesive is when they start looking out for each other, when they all see the the whole panorama of toys in Andy's room work together as opposed to one standing out, one yeah. being special, Yeah, which is an important message. Yeah, and, and like you said, there is room for growth, so we get to really have a proper evolution with him in, in all these films. Toy Story 2 has that interlude style to it. The, the other toys go to rescue Woody. They make it out of Owl's, so Owl loses all the money he thinks he's going to make off Woody. They just have to get back before Andy's at camp. Cowboy camp, Yeah, I think. That wouldn't have worked in the first Toy Story, and it certainly wouldn't have worked in Toy Story 3 if Andy wasn't present and is just... This is a sequel setup. Is Oh, right. the kid's away. That gives the toys this chance to go on this big adventure, and no one will ever know they're gone. Yeah, Andy definitely had a more... He had more of a presence in the first one mm -hmm. than the second one. Yeah. And and then and the third one, he definitely has more of a presence again. So there's Absolutely. that sort of he, full he becomes circle. a central character in a way. Yeah, because he, he's yeah. the audience. He he is yeah. us. He is the viewer. Yes, and causes us to reflect back. And one of the things that will come up if you read the scripts to Toy Story and then get into Toy Story two, and then at least by Toy Story three, you'll probably be thinking about. What toys did I have when I was a child? What kind of impressions did they leave on, on you? What can you visualize about them? Do you remember what they smelled like? What you, mm. what you did? What kind of characteristics you gave to them? All of that stuff. Right. And this is completely inherent in children. They, they just pick up toys and play with them and yep. assign them roles and start playing out uh, aspects of the world around them in this miniature form in front of them. Yeah which is always really fun uh, and adds some of the best comedy moments in Toy Story, whether it was Buzz being dressed up as Mrs. Nesbitt in the first one oh, yeah. to Woody joining the, the tea party at Bonnie's in, in the third one as well. It's, there's right. always this sense that toys, they do have these inherent characteristics as well, and sometimes they don't like being put in situations that they weren't designed for. 
Yeah. Buzz is designed yeah. to be an action figure. Right. So when he is turned into Mrs. Nesbitt, he has this identity crisis. And that's a constant theme, too, in all the films. There's a sort of identity existential crisis that they all kind of go through, which is really fun. You can yeah. really have a lot of fun with that. And it brings out a lot of comedy. And so the third one. Yeah, um, let's get started. I feel like the very beginning is just in a way, such a great way to do a lot of things at once. It's a really fun sequence where you have the toys being, uh, there's like a robbery and there's like a train sequence. It's a very action-filled. Mm -hmm. They're know, doing everything they couldn't have done with the technology they had in 1995. Obviously, yes. Now we have the bigger budget, the CG's improved over the years, and you have this very cool action sequence and you and you know what's going on you know this is andy's imagination but what what i kind of got from it is like this is what the toys go through every time that he plays with them so mm -hmm. this is like it's so much larger than life it's not yeah. them just being thrown around and the kid making gun noises or anything right. like that they really inhabit this world this space it's like for them it's like being in an action movie yeah for exactly a moment. Exactly. So I feel like we get a glimpse into their world of how it is when they're being played with. It raises the stakes in a way because you get to experience what they experience and what it means to them as well. It also kind of foreshadows at the very end of the film, if you recall, you have they're about to face a certain death and they all hold hands. So there's a scene, there's a moment in this opening sequence where it ends with that same beat. But obviously, it's more playful. But I just thought that was kind of funny that it was foreshadowing something that was going to happen Absolutely. at the there, very end. There's lots and lots of mirrors uh, going through the the script of Toy Story 3. And you can neatly divide it into these two halves that, that mm. complement each other really well. Yeah. The segue is beautiful. The, this is what leads into the title credits. And we, we watch Andy grow up. We see this home video footage made by his mom. Mm -hmm. We see Buster the puppy, who is now old, now well, old, yeah. and originally was just the punchline of the the first film because they were so terrified a new toy like Buzz would come in and ruin the gang, and then it's oh my god he's got a puppy this is <laughs> oh yeah this is yeah. completely beyond our imagination that suddenly it's going to be picking them all up and running around with them in its mouth and all that kind of stuff right but clearly the toys and the dog form this bond because. Mm -hmm the dog can't tell anyone that it sees the toys moving around. So Woody can ride Buster, but when we get to the present day with Andy about to go to college, Buster is old and has yeah. aged as well and is kind of on his last legs. Uh, which makes sense. I mean, dogs obviously grow older, faster. Yeah, we get like a nice little recap to remind us, you know, that this is sort of Andy's story in a way. And then it cuts to a present day, which they're on Operation get Andy back you get the sense that this is their last try and they're trying to get Andy to answer a cell phone inside a chest in the hopes that he will look at these toys again and start playing with them yeah which is and a very it feels futile. so sad yeah. it is very it's very desperate and um, they're trying and you know I think everyone pretty much feels that except Woody who is kind of the most sort of resistant to the idea that they're not going to be played with ever again we also see the group yeah. has dwindled, so there's only core characters left now. But Woody, right. Jesse, Buzz, 
Ham, Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head, Rex, Slinky, Etch-A-Sketch is gone. Uh, some of the aliens are left. The soldiers depart. Bo knowing Peep that... is gone as well. Oh, and Peep is, yeah. Bo and Peep Bo is Peep gone. was a major character in the first two. And was Woody's love interest. Yes. So that's significant because Bo Peep always kind of stood out as being a bit odd in in being one of Andy's toys. And we get the sense that he outgrew her. And, and then I almost feel like it wasn't even his, it was probably his little sisters. Maybe. Yeah. Right? Because why would he own that? We don't you know. know. Yeah. But she was part of the original yeah. cast. She was always hanging out. We know we're probably going to see her in the fourth installment. I think we are, yeah. She's yeah. very prominently in the posters, so I think so, yeah. But, we'll probably get to see yeah. what happens to her. So we'll find all that stuff out soon. Mm -hmm. So this is like years later. It's kind of a sad story. So we get Andy's going to college. A lot of the characters don't want to end up in the attic. But they kind of agree with that, that that's the best thing to do. Mm -hmm. Is to just be in the attic and just to be there for Andy no matter what. This is where the code that they live by starts to become problematic. Mm. Because they are so in servitude to Andy, for lack of a better word, that all they can conceive is a life where they wait patiently in the attic for him to come and get them. Right. But he's outgrowing them. Yeah. And he's not a toy collector. He's not like Al. He's or, not going yeah. to polish Woody and sit him up on a mantelpiece either. Right. But we see in the in the private moments in Andy's room that he does care about these toys. Mm -hmm. We see that he's slightly torn about what to do with them. And certainly with Woody, he's got such a strong connection. And it's definitely Woody being that representation of his childhood, mm -hmm. wanting to hold on to some sort of token of it, even yeah. though he's he's this is his rite of passage. He's going to move out of the family home, go to college, and start an adult life. He's still got that. He needs a talisman of his his childhood. Just to hold on to those that those memories. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I can kind of feel that you know, there's things I have from childhood that have a special meaning that I just don't want to give away just because it holds that special meaning to me and that connection. And uh, obviously, when his mom comes and says you got to clean out your room, and he's got a box for the stuff he needs to take to college and everything else that's going to go in the attic. And I think just to add to what you were saying earlier, I think. Part of what the toys were kind of hoping is that he would give them to like his kid and that they could be part of like a generational thing. Mm -hmm. And but who knows, like that that's not even guaranteed. And it's know? also a dangerous path to follow for them. First is dependent on Andy having a kid. Right. He might and not even have a kid. Yeah. We saw the difficulties that were introduced when Buzz was was introduced into their group. Hmm. What's it going to be like competing with the toys of? 2030 right right yeah that's true and so but nonetheless you know they decide they're going to go to the attic and at this point it's up to andy and and then we get to see what he chooses so he decides that he's going to take woody to college and he's going to put the other toys up in the attic and on his way to you know put him in the attic his sister i think interrupts him yeah he leaves him in the hallway she's nagging him yeah she wants his his room it's her opportunity to 
to have her own rite of passage in a way to become right. the eldest child in the house when he leaves. She's yeah. donating some of her old toys. Her to, Barbie, yeah. Yeah, her Barbie is one. Who becomes a important character later in the film. To um, a local daycare center. Yeah. Events unfold, essentially, when Andy's original intention to put them up in the attic is no more. His mum picks up this bag, a black bin liner, and just thinks it's meant to go out on the street. Mm-hmm. So she takes it out there. Mm-hmm. And all the toys are inside. And they're in shock and fear. They don't know why they're being taken out. They hear the, the truck approaching and they, they're terrified. Mm-hmm. But Woody has already seen what's happening from an outside perspective. Oh, and right. another important thing that was introduced by the story team is that Mrs. Potato Head has lost one of her eyes in Andy's room. Mm-hmm. So that kind of gives her this power to perceive what's going on in Andy's world while they're separated from him, right. which is quite fun as well. It, it adds this new dynamic to the story where we don't have to show what's going on without the characters knowing when they have no way of getting news. It's it, really clever. Yeah, it's very clever. It's very clever and it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like a forced thing either because we saw that happen in the second one when Mr. Potato would detach his eye and he would be able to like see things he wouldn't have had if he hadn't. So it doesn't just come out of nowhere too. So I think that was a neat little thing that they did. And yeah, so they're they're thrown to the curb and they're very clever toys, so they managed to, you know, get back. One thing that's really well done yep. is that they made the, I don't know what you call him, sanitation worker. Uh, they made him so iconic. He's he's drumming on the oh the, yeah the, on uh, the letterbox and he's he's just so iconic. He's he's listening to this rock uh, the garbage and, guy yeah yeah, and that works brilliantly because later on, right at the very end of the story, when we see this guy again, we know who he is. We know he's the garbage guy from Andy's neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And that just wouldn't have worked if it was just a generic person. By giving him just one little memorable thing, just that memorable amount of screen time, allows us as an audience to instantly recognize him later on and what it symbolizes. It's the ride home. It's salvation. Yeah. So it, that's something that was, yeah. if that wasn't in that scene, the whole ending wouldn't work. Yeah. And that's brilliant. Yeah, you're right. It's little details like that. Like I said, there's just such impeccable plotting without making it feel like it was forced or too, mm-hmm. super controlled. And then, you know, there's a really fun theory out there. I don't know where I read it, but that he's actually Sid from the first film. <laughs> but I don't know if that's confirmed. So but he went on to great things. Yes. I mean, but didn't we see that though? <laughs> he wasn't a very pleasant kid. He would be a garbage guy. But anyways... They're very clever and they managed to get back to the garage and at which point Woody worried it's that he's... It's hard at work trying to save them. Trying to save yeah. them. He sees that they're back at the garage. So he goes... And then that's when I think the the real conflict begins between these characters because Woody's the only one that saw that they were being put in the attic, but it was a mistake that they ended up on the, on the street. From the toys' perspective, they feel betrayed because they feel like Andy was going to throw them out. So in their mind, they might as well just go their own way. Andy clearly doesn't want them. So to them, it's like, well, they fulfilled their purpose. They don't need to be there anymore. And then this is where we see 
Woody being, you know, the loyal character that he is. Well, one, he he knows the truth of it all, but we see the major conflict between him and Jesse. So we see these two perspectives clashing. As this won't be entirely resolved, I get the feeling this theme is going to come up in Toy Story 4. Mm. What is the purpose of being a toy is going to come up again as a question. And it's something that early on in the original Toy Story, Woody says... It doesn't matter how much we're played with. What matters is that we're here for Andy when he needs us. Right. And that's really important. That That is the code they live by. Yeah. And when they go to a daycare center, which is where they're going to, to end up, one of the fun things about Pixar movies is that characters get whisked away on these adventures, mm. sometimes without their it being their intention. Right. But still, we feel like it's a choice. There, there's no sense that these these toys are just whisked away. Uh, otherwise, Andy's mom could have just picked them up, looked in the bag, and said, oh, I guess I'll take them and donate them. Right. Instead, there's a lot more adventure. There's a lot more. There's exactly, as you mentioned, the conflict between Woody and the other characters. What should we do? What is the purpose of being a toy if Andy doesn't want us anymore? Yeah. And so they, they're looking for options, they're looking for solutions. And as an, as an audience or as readers with the screenplay, we're, we're wondering the same thing. What should they do? Where should they go? Yeah, and I mean, I think we're all kind of participating in that conversation too because as an audience, you're thinking, well, yeah, they, you're not going to be played with. So, I mean, you probably should go. But yeah. then there's also the Woody perspective. We're here for Andy. There's that loyalty going on. Uh, but like you say, they're whisked on this adventure that's going to explore that journey mm -hmm. further. And Woody has to go with them. One of the options that they usually fail to see is how important the group cohesion is. How in reality, the fun of being one of Andy's toys is to be a part of that family, to be a part of that group. Yeah. And there are very strong bonds between so many of those characters. Woody and Buzz, after all of this time, have become such close friends and then woody has all these links to all the older toys from before slinky and ham mr potato head mm. mr and mrs potato head want to be together they they're made for each other oh, yeah. and this yeah. this comes up because it's quite a fun way of looking at the concept of destiny and yeah and things but with toys they can be literally made for each other and that's what happens with barbie and ken <laughs> yeah. when they finally meet as well that yeah they're, of course, attracted to each other instantly because that's what the designers had intended for those toys to always interact with each other. Yeah. Uh, Buzz and Jesse is a fun one because they, they are kind of loners. They are such strong characters, both of them, but they don't really have that complementing other half. So mm. that's, a, that's a nice touch as well is introducing that romance instead of Jesse and Woody, for example. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think um, the Jess Buzz, you know, romance that begins, I think there was a preview of that in the second one. I don't remember the moment exactly, but it was definitely hinted in the second one and obviously explored a little bit more in, in the third. It's always fun just to hear them bicker because they all have very different perspectives. You know, you have Rex, who's the super anxious one, and you have the potato head, who's, you know, always a little bit more cynical and... And then you have Ham, who's um, also kind of cynical. Ham is great for, and part of the family 
friendly nature of the films is uh, John Ratzenberger, who he played Cliff Clavin on Cheers, mm. is this character who is constantly talking about things he doesn't really know about. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And you get that character in Ham when he refers to the type of child lock that's on the door or the type of plastic that the the bag that they're trapped in is like he's always talking about things as if he knows exactly what's going on like like he's a handyman like he knows everything about the world but in reality he's just he's just a piggy bank he doesn't know anything (laughs) he's he's never been in the real world so right uh i i love the inclusion of um yeah john ratzenberg well we don't know they watch a lot of tv so maybe they get a lot of information from the tv yeah (laughs) i mean they have time so, <laughs> but he, he, um, it's something inherent in his character that he yeah, no, accumulates all that knowledge. Whereas Rex, for example, is he's kind of like the, uh, the lion in right, the Wizard cowardly lion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's this Tyrannosaurus Rex who is just this, he's, he's so cute and, and is, acts entirely like a six year old in every yeah. single film. And he's constantly afraid. And he's mm-hmm. a T-Rex. Yeah. But in always in Andy's um, playtime, he's this ferocious monster. But that's what I said. It's really fun to see like Andy's perspective and then the actual personality of the toys. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, they all get with to uh, daycare where we get introduced to a major character in Bonnie, this little girl. And she's there hanging out with her mom. And she's there when Andy's mom goes in there to deliver the toys to... Uh, be donated to the daycare and uh and there's a really fun moment well for me like when the the lady that works there opens the box and she says you sure you want to they want to get rid of this and and then the mom very confident says like yeah you know they don't play with them anymore mm-hmm. if she had only just glimpsed for a second into that box but then we wouldn't have a, a story uh, yeah, yeah and different things come up with bonnie during the events of toy story 3 which make her a worthy successor to Andy. Yeah. She cares for toys. She saves abandoned toys. That's that's the characteristic that makes her the worthy successor, the one who the baton is going to be passed on to. And that is neat writing as well. That is very it's very well established for just this small child who has very few lines that she deserves the toys. She's not going to be a Sid. She's not going to be an owl. She is one of these characters who... It, it's almost like the Statue of Liberty of bring me your wretched and your poor. <laughs> you know, like that's what, that's what she right, is. She yeah. saves the, the clown toy and that's how we find out about Lotso's backstory. Yeah. She finds Woody hanging from a tree and saves him when, when he's stuck. Mm-hmm. And so we, we get this perception that Bonnie deserves to be the next main character in the toy story and she's got a big imagination and uses her playtime very seriously she assigns these characters very proper roles and when we get to i know we're skipping a little bit here but when we have woody there be introduced to you know her toys and how she plays it's a really fun bit because you you get to see how much she really cares about playing with these toys and these toys love her and Mm -hmm. you know they actually have proper roles and you know there's this really fun bit where she's finished playing with them and at that point we already know exactly what's probably going on in their minds because of the opening sequence which is why i think that was such a brilliant thing so you don't have to see that again but just based on how she's interacting with them 
you get the sense like, dang, they're having the time of their life. This sounds like a pretty neat story that she's creating. And then when she leaves the room, I think it's one of the toys that asks what he's like, are you properly trained? You know, yeah. it's like are you classically trained, classically trained, <laughs> like this Shakespearean actor yeah. uh, character. And I think that's just and really, all they do is stand there, which is wonderful because yeah. it is acting. They because they are alive, because they have personalities and feelings and everything, they have to act. They have to stay still. And that's something that when the daycare reveal happens as well as that the toys have to sit there and take their punishment as well it's it's all acting they're really going through these emotions if they're being thrown around they're really being thrown around if yeah. they're being played with carefully and considerately it's the best feeling in the world for them mm -hmm. so that that was a very interesting dynamic to add into the rules of the world in which the toys inhabit yeah, yeah. i really like that too and so, yes, they're taken to daycare where we're introduced to a whole set of new toys and we see their leader, Lotso. But he's an old-timer. An old-timer. He's, he's been through some stuff, which will be revealed as the story progresses. Mm -hmm. He's not to be trusted. He's a bit of a shapeshifter character. And we don't get that at first. You know, we get this very, like, He's cuddly, yeah. And he smells pink. like strawberries. Right. He's a super cuddly, you know, furry uh, teddy bear. And he's got this really nice, charming southern drawl. And um, I was reading that the actor who was playing him, he was given the direction to really hone in on the southern accent because I guess it just sounds a little bit more welcoming and warm. Mm -hmm. And they really, Homey, yeah. yeah, and they really wanted the, you know, for us, the audience to not suspect yeah, we get that taken he had in. another yeah. motive. The script describes Lotso as exuding an easy, cheerful charisma. So that's that's all we get in in the screenplay. But yeah, it basically sets it up for us as readers as well. We don't hear an accent or anything, but right, we get the sense that he's like that. But then some of the things he starts to say, that's where a little bit of a doubt comes in. Yeah, we might become suspicious. He mentions how everyone in daycare has been dumped or abandoned or forgotten in, in some sort of way. And that the daycare is going to be almost like paradise, that you'll never be outgrown. There's all these kids coming in. They never get older because every kid that gets older goes on somewhere else and then new kids come to the daycare. When Woody mentions Andy, he says, Lodso says to Woody, it's his lost sheriff. He can't hurt you no more. Right, yeah, that's the first red flag. It, mm -hmm. He's being slightly manipulative. Yeah, trying to paint Andy as some sort of abuser. Without knowing and, nothing about him. And it's we know that that comes from his backstory as right. we find out more about him, that mm -hmm. he feels that he was abandoned, that kids can't be trusted. He's jaded, he's, he's hurt. He's been hurt in the past and he's not going to open himself right. up again. And yep. that is something that... Again, it's an important message hidden within what we might dismiss initially as a kid's film is mm. that there is, just like Toy Story 2 looked at the, the concept of vanity, in Toy Story 3 we look at what this is, what, what this means to be feeling that way, to feel abandoned. Maybe we get a bit of that with Jessie as well, but she, she picks the right path. Right. Ultimately. But we see the, the, the sort of alternative, which is... A bit more resentful well way more mm -hmm. resentful and uh, you know he ends up being revealed as the villain 
of mm-hmm. the film. And Trying to completely control ev- his entire environment, the mm-hmm. lives of everyone else around him because of this pain that he feels within. Yeah, and he's like, he's created this sort of pyramid, this hierarchy, this sort of empire, which is great. That's such a mm-hmm. that's such a fun storyline to follow. You know, you have this great concept. You have daycare, and this is like a sort of utopia for toys, and then you have this like corrupt ruler at the top. That is a reflection of our world. Mm-hmm. If if anything, it's that we have we have nature, we have this utopia, and yet there are there are going to be power structures, there's going to be these big societies, and they can work, as we'll see later on, Yeah. or Andy's room, or any functioning uh, room full of toys where they all find a way to coexist and play with each other and, and appreciate each other's values. But when you have a character like Lotso who wants to take over and dominate by force, that's going to upset everything. He's he's going to manipulate. He's going to 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 lie to people, to trick them. He's going to get toys to betray each other, things like that. So yeah, that's what they're introducing for young minds to maybe not think about, but maybe even just integrate into their way of thinking. Yeah, so you don't want to be like Lotso. You want to be like Woody or Buzz. And he's a little bit more fleshed out than previous villains. You know, you get. Stinky Pete, who was, you know, he was a proper villain, but you didn't really get to see much of uh, the level of manipulation that Lotso has, or even Sid. You know, at the end of the day, yes, Sid was troubled, but you know, just get—he was just this angry teenager who was just blowing up toys. It was nothing personal. He was just being a, you know, a crazy kid. But with Lotso, there's real sort of ill intent mm. in what he a does. A lot more insidious, yeah. Yes, he definitely has a more sinister agenda, I think, especially because he's kind of creating a society that's serving him and whoever agrees with him and whoever doesn't has their designated place in this whole society that he's sort of created. Yeah, it, it's kind of like the power of walls, the power of doorways. Mm-hmm. They can be for protection. You can create this safe, haven within the walls of the daycare or you can turn it into a prison from which mm. no one can escape and yeah. that's what Lotso is playing around with is that he's figured out that daycare serves just as well as a prison as it would as a safe utopia that can't be intruded upon from by the outside right yeah and uh just from a storytelling point too like you get introduced to the people on his side uh his posse his posse yes exactly so you get introduced to big baby who they've been together since the beginning um when they got to daycare you are introduced to ken you get the monkey (laughs) Mm. monkey is a great iconic (laughs) character i love the monkey and you get and the telephone the lifer which is that alludes to the whole prison thing again Uh, yeah he's he's there for life we Uh. know in prisons that you go in and you talk to someone right. on the telephone. Uh, they're sat in front of you, separated by glass, and there's telephones on either side. So I think that's who the lifer is alluding to. Right. Is is that concept. And that daycare has become a prison. And the great thing about being in the toy world is that you get very memorable characters because you can play with different toys. I can only imagine how fun that must be as a writer when you're thinking of the early stages of characters and story, like Big Baby Doll, which I think everyone has seen 
at one point in their childhood or especially if you have a little sister. Yeah, Pixar does a great job of introducing familiar toys. Etch-A-Sketch was one who who was in the earlier films as well. Toys that seem to be in many different bedrooms. Lifer is a pretty popular one. You have Um, Ken, obviously. Yeah, Bobby and Ken, obviously. uh, There's probably some money involved changing hands for, for them being in the film, but... Woody and Buzz and Jesse, they're all iconically unique designs for Pixar. So there's something right. really fun about that as well, that that some of the characters are driven by character development within Pixar, mm-hmm. which is a big enterprise. Any, any kind of CGI-based process is going yeah. to have lots of sketching to do at the beginning, designing characters. What are they going to be like? What are their accessories going to be like? Mm-hmm. And then creating the personality around them. Mm-hmm. And then you take existing toys that we know from the real world and give them personalities. And that's mm-hmm. done really well as well. And I think Michael Arndt does a great job of creating Ken, creating Barbie. And I just love how Ken is just such a cheesy 1960s guy. And it's just it just works brilliantly. Yeah. And he's also really touchy about because he is who he is. He is Ken. He loves clothes. He lives in the big dollhouse. But he is like the most interesting character in the yeah. film. For me, anyways. He's just so... He's got so many different sides to him. You have him like... I mean, clearly he's not gay because he's into Barbie. But he's such a metrosexual by nature, by design. Because mm-hmm. he's got yeah. all these different And he uh, gets touchy clothes. about being called a girl's toy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And and also, you know, he's not on the right side when we first meet him. You know, he's doing Lotso's dirty work. Yeah, and, he feels and, like he's got something to prove, maybe. Yeah, and, he's not and a it, good character at the beginning. No, but it's it's maybe part of the suggestion is he needs he needs to meet his other half. He needs to meet Barbie to get the best out of him. Right, because which happens. Yeah, if he's just by himself, he's self-absorbed, and right. he feels like no one else gets him. Mm-hmm. And it's through Barbie that he's able to uh, transcend his limitations as just being Ken by himself, which who would have thought that this kind of thing would be thought about in a screenplay for, <laughs> yeah. for about toys. And that is just one of the, the admirable things about the way that Pixar thinks about these, mm-hmm. these stories. Yeah. You, you don't necessarily just have bit characters in the same way. Yep. If they sense an opportunity to give a character a personality, they do it. Oh, yeah. And different nuances, too. Not just like, you know, one dimension. They usually have a lot going on. And I like the scene where they discover that playing with kids is not necessarily a good thing, especially if they're toddlers. And so that's when we get to see the, the dark side of being a toy. If you're playing with kids that are don't know how to play with kids. And what I was going to leave that to is sort of this empire or this sort of like segregated uh, society that Lotto has created where the people at the very bottom have to be played by the kids that are going to mistreat them or throw them or use them for as paintbrushes. And um, it's really funny, too. Like, it's just really funny what happens yes. to these toys. It's and not it's, funny to them, but... It's funny because we... We know what's going on. We've seen the toys in these this situation so many times that they have to just 
sit still and take it. (laughs) And it's completely beyond anything they could have ever experienced before. Right. Except for Buzz and Woody when they end up with Sid, basically. is. Mm-hmm. But that was just threat. They they don't actually end up necessarily too damaged by that encounter. Yeah. But this is just chaos. This And it's done so well. It's it's so funny. Even when you're reading through and you're reading all the, the Buzz being hammered in and you see it from his point yeah. of view and all that kind of stuff. It works brilliantly. Yeah. And it gives suddenly there's stakes now because they need to get out of this situation. Right. They can't be left forever being traumatized, being beaten every single day. Yeah. Buzz calls it finding age appropriate kids, which I think is a nice way of thinking about it as well. That there are certain toys that might have inherent characteristics. They're designed to be hard and durable, not gonna break. But Buzz He's got wings. He's got arms that can come off if you hit him too hard. He's got this helmet that's retractable. All right. of this stuff, he can get damaged. He can stop being the toy he was if right. he's mistreated. The same with Jesse, the same with Woody, all of them. They have an age appropriate. Yeah, exactly. Having a two-year-old niece, like now I, I think of that whenever I see her play with her toys because, yeah, she doesn't know how to play with them. She just throws things and hits things and, you know, she doesn't know what to do. <laughs> she, her, her imagination hasn't quite reached that level of trying to articulate some sort of playtime for story or whatever. Um, so it's more about motor skills at this, this yeah. age, right? And it's just like, you know, they're... They're, it's just sensory perceptions too. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just discovering touch and and smells and all that stuff, and that's what they're mostly interested in. So their imagination hasn't quite developed in that sense. Yeah. So that leads to Buzz gets offered the opportunity to escape the hell, but only him. Right. And the loyalty to the group starts to become more important, and that is articulated with Buzz making that decision. It, it it feels sort of like um like a bit of a heist film. It, well, it becomes a heist film, which is really cool. But at this point, we're yeah, getting to know a, the players. There's definitely an element of great escape to this. Yeah, and we're getting to know the players. We're getting to know the parameters. And, and the fact that we're already introduced to these toys beforehand, I think, was great in setting up this sort of things just not seeming what, what they are. This is when Lotso reveals who he is. Yeah, and that's what makes him a dangerous enemy is the by the time they figure out who he is, it might be too late. Yeah. And unfortunately, well, fortunately, Buzz doesn't cooperate. And so they decide to... And it was this is another like interesting, clever thing that I like, very creative, is that Lotso actually had someone get the uh, Buzz Lightyear manual. The bookworm. The bookworm, the yes. Uh, so Who clever. is a frustrated librarian. <laughs> type character yes yeah, so, see i love all these like things yeah so he's the one that brings you know the manual so they decide to change buzz settings to demo and therefore Restore setting him, him back him to his original settings factory settings which is the buzz we we met in toy story the original toy story correct so in a way it's kind of like that buzz lightyear makes a return mm-hmm. in this film which is really fun and it's important that the growth the buzz goes through is that in the original Toy Story, he watches himself on TV or a Buzz Lightyear on TV. 
that can do things he can't do. And that's when he realizes mm. he's just a toy. He's not really Buzz Lightyear. So when you reset him, he thinks he's Buzz Lightyear. He thinks his laser works again. He thinks he can fly. He thinks he's on this secret mission. He thinks he's landed on this planet from another. <laughs> it's so funny that that joke kind of can't get old in a way. Which is hilarious. He's got this yeah. potential to constantly stop being Buzz and return to being Buzz Lightyear, the action figure. And now that I think about it, he also made an appearance in the second one, but as another Buzz Lightyear who was in the toy store. Mm-hmm. And so we, yeah. so we, because then there's all these clones who all think they're the right the genuine Buzz Lightyear. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that Buzz Lightyear make has made an appearance in every film. And so, yeah, in this one, he is now working for Lotso, the other toys, you know, they sort of start to rebel. And so they're put in a sort of cell, which is interesting. So then that's when it really does become the great escape. Yeah. So they're going to, if they're going to get out and outwit, First Buzz, who is now someone they can't negotiate with. He doesn't remember them. Yeah. But they also have to outwit Lotso and all of the security measures he's built around yeah. the the daycare. Luckily, Woody is also going to return. At, at which point, yeah, Woody has left the building and um, he's now in the hands of Bonnie. And But Bonnie goes to the daycare center. So at least yeah. he can get back in through her backpack. Exactly. And just to go back to Buzz, I thought it was really fun the kind of names he uses for his friends now that he doesn't know them like Evil Temptress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which still plays in with the whole like he's obviously attracted to her, which is why yeah, he calls yeah, her Temptress. Yeah. Um anyways. So the inherent <laughs> the inherent attraction is really funny. Yeah, it's already there. Up. And yeah. when he turns into Spanish Buzz, then it's hyped up oh yeah. Ten times extra. He suddenly so becomes this Latin lover type character and his, his courtship dance is <laughs> possibly the highlight of the whole trilogy of movies. It's Yeah, it's so funny. And so, yeah, no, and then so Woody's kind of separated from the gang and Woody is now, we get introduced to Bonnie's toys. Well, we have Kristen Shaw, which is really fun as the Triceratops. Oh, yeah, she's funny. Who, again, is in, inherently meant to befriend Rex when they will finally meet. Yeah, they're both dinosaurs. So, yeah, so we get introduced to Bonnie's toys, Mr. Pricklepants, Trixie, and Buttercup. They welcome Woody. You know, they really like how Woody plays, and so he's welcomed. But at the same time, Woody has a, a, a mission to do, and he, he needs to get back to Andy. We also meet Chuckles at Bonnie's, and Chuckles holds the key in terms of plot because he was one of Lotso's friends and, along with Big Baby and they were actually a trio and they actually had the same owner. It's through Chuckles that we discover what happened to Lotso and the whole story of the daycare unfolds for Woody. So, um, And this is the midpoint of the script. Yeah. So from a screenwriting perspective, mm-hmm. this story has to happen in the middle. It's the big reveal. It's who is Lotso, why we can't trust him, why there's going to be no negotiating with him, what made him a villain. And it's all done through this flashback from from Chuckles uh, talking about their owner, Daisy, who mm-hmm. didn't abandon them. And that's 
that's one of the things Lotso has chosen to remember a specific way in his right. jaded fashion. She didn't abandon these toys. We also know that maybe Big Baby is not aware of this this truth. Yeah, and, so uh, she fell asleep and her parents forgot to pick up the toys and drove off. Exactly. And so, you know, all of a sudden Woody now has a choice to make. But he also has less than a day to get back to Andy's house mm-hmm. and be there for Andy for when he goes to college. And he makes the choice to go back and save his friends. Which is the valiant choice. It's it's the right one for for Woody as a character. Yep. And uh, it shows a lot of growth from Woody. Because oh the, yeah. the first scene of Toy Story Woody would have just gone back to Andy. Oh yeah, you know, he's the most important one and he needs to be there for Andy for sure. And I think this is when the film truly becomes this great escape. By adding a different genre to the film than we've seen in the previous two, I think it just gives it a more, it gives us its own identity, I think. You know what I mean? So I think every film in the trilogy has its own sort of identity. I think the second one's a bit of a rescue mission and this one's breaking out. This is the part of the script that screenwriters dread the second act and this is actually the part where most of the fun gets to happen and it's all because it's driven by this specific storyline of how are they going to escape and the fact that it's set up in the conversation between Woody and the lifer all of the rules which is how a good escape or heist movie will work so you have the whole montage sequence where and he's even got the voice for it too Mm -hmm. it's really perfect and it's all just like fun from there i think that's when all the toys really get to sort of showcase their their personality a lot you know you have mr potato head who uses his big mouth to their advantage you know oh yeah there's so many creative solutions you we can't talk about all of them in in this episode yeah you have to read the script you have to watch the movie to catch all of them mr potato head reassembling himself as a tortilla and later as a cucumber things like this they're just such brilliant ideas for playing around with these characters yeah and you know how they they escape from their prisons you know that there's a sequence. dummy potato in yep. in one of the boxes. They they have a fake prison fight to distract Buzz. Exactly. All of these different <laughs> and and you can see how this could have been done in a million different ways. They mm-hmm. there's probably a load of options that were pitched and then they they decided on this specific sequence of events. The monkey is very iconic. Really, really fun to include that idea of the eye in the sky kind right. of demonic monkey. Right. And then you have that whole sequence with Barbie. Because Barbie, you know, when she finds out what Ken's been up to... Yeah, she becomes a femme fatale. I don't know if she slaps him or something, but she just leaves him. Like, mm-hmm. no questions asked. Like, I'm here with my friends. She dupes him, in a way. She she tricks him into... Afterwards, yeah. ...showing... Yeah. Oh, is that... You talk about afterwards, but... Yeah, what well, was just Her way of tricking the, Ken is, is oh, yeah, wonderful. So Another great scene, which doesn't feel out of place going off and doing a side story for barbie and ken could have been the cheesiest just you can imagine that hitting a flat note really easily and yet there's so much fun to be had with these characters of ken trying on all his clothes and barbie kind of playing along so that she can 
get him when he's at his weakest. Yeah, exactly. And you know what she uses to finally break him <laughs> with a, I don't know what clothing she's ripping, but it's special yeah, so edition some iconic nineteen sixties piece that's uh, a collector's item. And Michael Keaton just brilliant as Ken, just the way he plays him. I mean, it's always fun and humorous, and never loses sight of what the film is in the end. It's it's a fun comedy. You know, it doesn't ever break away from that. Well, particularly this part. And when, obviously, stories end up having the structure that they do because there's something inherent to that that is, that's how a story works. But there is something about having all this fun and then really getting into the meat of what Toy Story 3 is going to be about. Mm. Because they think they're about to escape from daycare. But what they're really going to do is end up in the the showpiece, the finale of this whole trilogy of Toy Stories. Mm. And we almost don't see it coming. We almost think the intention is to escape from daycare. And that would have been a perfectly fine straight-to-video version of Toy Story 3 that could have happened. They escape from daycare, and they go back and catch Andy just in time to get into the attic. And that could have been it. Mm-hmm. But instead, that's when this is when Toy Story Three really turns into something that is a, a fitting finale to films that don't even really reach this height. Toy Story One, Two, don't necessarily go this far with their characters. Yeah, I mean, it just—you're right. It kind of misleads us into thinking this is the objective, and and then by the time we get to the end, we realize that would have been a very superficial objective compared to what comes afterwards. Okay, so nonetheless, you know, they they managed to escape, but not without, you know, lots of behind. And so then the action it goes beyond the escape. It goes beyond daycare and onto the dumpster outside mm-hmm. the daycare. And so then, the idea is that they can get through that, the chute, right. on top of the closed dumpster and kind of run away to, to right. freedom. And unfortunately for them, there's a, a truck coming their way to... There's a there's a bit of hijinks. There's a bit of the fact that Woody says something like, don't all come down at once. And then every, I think Ham oh, says, yeah, yeah. did he say all come down at once? Okay. And they all just come. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they come careering down. But it's okay. No one falls in. It's when Lotso turns up. Yep. Suddenly, it's the final showdown between the good guy and the villain right and also a uh, uh you know a change of heart from big baby who decides that when the truth is revealed to her and she sees lots of for his true colors and yeah you know, that's the toy's secret weapon is knowing lots past and knowing where he's made a mistake and she throws him in the dumpster and, and you know shuts the door and we think that's it you know she sort of put him in his place and but unfortunately he i don't know who's it's one of the aliens gets stuck Mm. that is their downfall. Oh, interesting, because then the aliens end up being also there. Exactly, but but at the at that time, the aliens completely are causing yeah. this to go on much longer than the toys had hoped for. True, and so they're all on the same journey at this point with Lotso and the other toys. So the truck then takes them to a landfill mm-hmm. where okay. the climax of the film takes place. 
And at this point, you know, we have Lotso and the rest of the toys are all kind of sharing the same fate. Yeah. And, we and get it's important at a climax, if you've got a villain, you give him one last chance to redeem himself. Exactly. If you've got a hero or a heroine, they've got that last chance to make the heroic final stand. Mm-hmm. And this is set up because Lotso ends up in danger himself. He's yep. no longer in control. And for a little second there, we think, you know, maybe he's having a change of heart and he's now working. It seems like he's working together now with the toys because he sees that, you know, they're all bound for the same fate. And uh, but the opportunity comes for for him to do the honorable thing. And he doesn't and abandons them and saves himself, essentially, sending them all down to the the part where the trash is literally being incinerated, incinerated yeah. into the incinerator into nothingness basically and um and then this is the beginning of a lot of powerful moments in the film they are facing death yeah. they're facing it together as a group and the big question that's always in the background of this scene is the fact that they still haven't figured out what they want from life they still they're just trying to get back to Andy and he's going to put them in the attic and maybe leave Woody on a shelf at college, mm-hmm. never pay him any attention. Should they resign themselves to that fate? Should they be incinerated? And there's a point where they just stop struggling. Is it okay to let go at this point? Yeah. I think, yeah. I mean, And that is one of the most powerful moments, not just in the series but i think in in film in general because at this point you care about these characters and so they're just not animated toys like you've been with them for three films and and mm-hmm. and an entire lifetime for at the point that this film was released we're talking about kids who were six seven eight nine ten when toy story came out now being just at that age a little bit older than andy Exactly. Yeah. Projecting all of these memories of their childhood onto this film. Yeah, that that's why that's there. But I remember watching the film and at that point thinking, they're not going to kill the toys. They're not going to kill the characters. And you're thinking, well, how are they going to escape? But it drags on. And it drags on. And yeah. then the point comes where, you know, like you said, they stop resisting. And one of my favorite, this is one of my favorite moments because they all start looking at each other I think it's Buzz, the first one who stops resisting, then looks at Jesse, who then looks at the others, and then there's that sense of like they're surrendering to death. They're they're not struggling anymore, and they're gonna die together. And In the solidarity. Last, yeah, and the last one that is resisting is Woody, and I just love that that shot of Buzz extending his hand to Woody, and Woody just looking at him and just him too, just accepting, and then you have the whole gang there just accepting their fate together and it just seemed like for a split second that that would be such a fitting end that for a second I did believe like well I guess that is how they're gonna go you know it manages to convince you that this is a possibility and that is a very tough thing to do yep and it works specifically because it's an alternative ending to this long saga because if we had just started this film out with half of the toys 
being sent to the dumpster. It wouldn't have had that impact. But they've been striving so hard throughout mm-hmm. the entire film. We feel that they've been doing it for three films in a row, all the way back to when Andy was a kid. They they keep ending up in these situations and finding a way out of them. Yeah. Is that is that over now? Is there suddenly is there lock up? And are we as an audience ready to let go of them? Are we ready to let go of our childhoods in some way? That's a big question it starts asking us. Right, yeah. That kind of, in a way, plants that seed because now you're reflecting on your attachment to these characters and the possibility that they're about to meet their demise. And, you know, like I said, it's a very tough thing to do in, in scripts or in film because... And if you put that same scenario in an action film or in, I mean, in a live action film, you're not really going to fully believe that these main characters are about to die. Like, you know, there's that usually doesn't happen. There's always that last save. And usually as a, as an audience member, you kind of guess who's going to come in and save the day. And I remember watching it this time. I'm like, I know we obviously know who comes and saves the day, which is the claw who is being driven by the little aliens. But then, Which is the most Toy Story moment imaginable. Yeah, and you don't, but you never think of the little aliens. I kind of did the math. I'm like, at what point between the aliens leaving the scene, between that moment and the moment where they come back, I'm like, it must have been a very long period for us to forget. But honestly, it was like three minutes. Well, they love claws. That's the thing. If, they, <laughs> if there's a right. claw, they're going to find it. I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. But we un- as that's a great thing. A lot of Deus Ex Machina's as an audience, we're going to question and say, oh, that couldn't have happened. This is the most Toy Story moment. It's just, yes, of course the aliens are going to come with the claw. Yeah, they found the biggest claw they can find. And, I mean, yeah, it's per- it's a perfect, perfect moment. Um, but I, I was just, I remember that experience watching it the first time in the theater and just ready to start accepting that they were mm-hmm. about to die. And I'm like... That's really rare because you never believe that when you're watching a, an, a live action for well, the most a, part. It's a powerful moment in story structure. Uh, all of these uh, story structure plans that are built off the Joseph Campbell ideas as well. You have a death and rebirth. But this is this is a very literal death and rebirth mm-hmm. moment that seems to do it in a way that only Pixar can do. Maybe you could say, oh, well, it's it's basic it's basic story structure. But in reality, this one seems to have a significant payoff that makes you think a little bit more about it. Yeah. And it's why this film has been so highly regarded. Right. And that's not the end. You know, you still have the, the, rebirth. the yeah. rest of the story. So after the great moment, Deus Ex Machina, as I mentioned earlier, recognizing that character the the garbage man who who plays the drums and is listening to rock music possibly said right. just that little iconic note of hey that guy works in Andy's neighborhood he's the way to get home there's a nice comeuppance for Lotso that he ends up tied mm. to the front of a truck right don't know what to if you want to add anything to it it's just a I think it's a nice footnote to the story for Lotso. Yeah, Lotso's ending. Well, I I don't I don't think he fully learns anything. I don't think we get a glimpse into if he actually learns. He just gets sort of punished for for what he did, and it it seems like he's going to be there for a really long time. If we look at his company, 
so he's now the prisoner. So the tables have turned. Yeah, some sort you of know. justice. Yeah. Served. Then that that kind of concludes the sort of Lotso saga, and then it becomes about the grander story that was established at the very beginning of the film that we at this point maybe kind of forgot because we were so wrapped up in the whole them trying to escape and so now yeah. we come back but it doesn't come out of nowhere because it was set up at the beginning yeah we now have to address that question does it matter what andy's going to decide to do with them do the toys have some sort of say in their own destiny and they do woody writes a note when once they get back to the house Woody writes a note in the screenplay. It doesn't say what's on the note. All we know is he leaves a note on top of the box, and Andy reads it and decides to donate the toys to Bonnie. Yeah. So but yeah, we never. We see... we have to infer what what Woody would have said. Right. But clearly, it touches Andy. It it leaps out to him. It calls him to action. He's suddenly thinking. I'm I'm going to do it. I'm going to donate these toys. I had such a great time with them when I was a kid. Someone else deserves to play with them. And that then is, from the toys' perspective, it's a whole new life, a whole new opportunity to, to do it all over again, yep. as opposed to going into retirement, as opposed to right. dwindling away or becoming collector's items, being stuffed in an attic, whatever it is that are the alternatives for them, they get to have a new childhood. Yeah, exactly. And I think Woody answers a question that I think he was probably asking himself, what is he going to do in college? As Mr. Potato Head addressed at one point, he's like, you know, college is no place for toys. You know, no one's going to be playing with Woody. So what's his purpose? Woody said in the first, toys are a play thing. He constantly repeated that. So I think he probably came to his senses because he puts himself in the box and clearly makes that choice that he's not going to college with Andy. There is a, a proper act for a character. Mm -hmm. Andy gets a nice finale in that Bonnie is so shy around him that he starts acting out who all those toys were to him. Mm -hmm. He brings up the, the evil version of Ham, and he brings up all of these different things, all of the characteristics he's assigned to his toys, I believe the final one he introduces is Buzz, and that's kind of the end of the box for him. That's what he's willing to hand over. Well, he doesn't realize that what is in the box. He doesn't realize. And he can only imagine that that note that would be ending up in the box. It's, it's all a bit too coincidental for him, but it's nicely written that he kind of holds Woody away from Bonnie yeah. for a moment and he's holding on it it's it's such a treasured possession to him it's this like toy. his instinct yeah, yeah. and uh, and yet he chooses to to pass it on and there's an important message there in this in the summary of of this film of the importance of passing things on of sharing experiences of mm. of not trying to keep things to oneself not being selfish yeah and and also another thing for, for screenwriting is that I think part of the reason why it works is that we didn't spend the entire film dealing with these themes in in detail. We didn't spend a lot of time with Bonnie. We didn't spend a lot of time with Andy. They were more of a presence because the toys were 
their intention and their motivation the entire film was a reflection of what their relationship was to these characters. And that's how we were exploring these themes. So it wasn't ever really kind of shoved down your throat or really pushed in your face. So it was just that great setup, those very, you know, the beginning and then getting to know Bonnie. By the end, it just felt like this very organic moment in which all of a sudden you're kind of hit by a ton of bricks. I think that's part of the reason why it's so effective because we weren't really working towards it. It was sort of in the peripherals. It was sort of in the background mm-hmm. of this sort of heist movie and these toys trying to break free. It was in the peripherals. So by the time we get to that moment, it's like we were kind of dreading that moment in the back of our minds. And then like now it's here. And I think that's why it's so effective. Had it been, had the whole film been constantly about Andy and letting go, I don't think the ending would have been effective. Do you know what I mean? So they were very clever in how they sort of mm-hmm. set everything up. And this is a part of Toy Story that has constantly been a contention between studio, well, let's say production, Disney, essentially, and Pixar, the creative side. There's There had always been this conflict between executives saying, well, what about the kids? We need more kids, right? Because we we need we need the kids so that people care about the story. Yeah. And this really just is a final answer to a final retort to that kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. It's, you, you don't need to focus on the kids. You you bring them in when they are relevant to what's happening. You don't have fifteen different children running around and have an ensemble cast of kids. It's not going to right. work with this story. The story is about the toys. It's about their relationship to the world. It's about something that's this fun process of imagination for us to imagine, oh, our toys could be alive and what would they think and what would they do? There's a sense of fun, I think, that they go about it. I think it kind of helps that, you know, the filmmakers and the studio are in, I think they're very much linked and a lot of the creatives, they're also the producers, so they don't really have anyone to really answer to. So it's sort of their playground and they get to just... Well, I'm referring to the contentions between Disney and Pixar. Right. So that, yeah. So what I mean is, you know, that's why it works because you have other studios, not just Disney, where it works the way you're saying, where there mm-hmm. is an agenda, there is a business side where you're like, well, we're aiming at kids, so we should probably put them more so that they can relate. All these sort of superficial things that they're trying to manipulate into the story so that they can get the biggest reaction you're yeah and that that this proves that you don't need that you have to honor what the story is what what the characters are what the themes are and how to provide the most effective way based on what the storytellers are trying to create and their process and it's a very creative process and it's not your traditional you sit down and you write down a a three-act structure and then you start writing like these guys are constantly going back and forth it takes years you know and then once the actors come in i can only imagine they add a little bit more to the table too that's one thing i wanted to mention earlier is Mm -hmm. that how we kind of know this script was built up is that they showed all of the they didn't give the actors a script they showed them a reel of footage basically showing this film yes i heard that in a in a private screening and and just for the actors to say are you on board for this project as opposed to giving them a script so 
potentially the script didn't exist in written form for a lot of the development. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting for us as we like to look back at different drafts of scripts or, or books and things like that. I believe Pixar is always going to be a mystery to us. Uh, yeah, they had they work in a very completely different, non-traditional way, and I think Tom Hanks is the one that he was saying how the 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 runtime of that uh, reel that they sh- they were shown it was the exact runtime of the film, so it was almost like they had a very strong intention, and they weren't under contract at this point, so this was their way of like kind of pitching this story to them. Mm-hmm. And I can only imagine how nervous they were because it all kind of just... You Everything's can't, riding on it. Yeah. yeah, you can't duplicate Tom Hanks or Tim Allen, you know, as these roles. Unless you have Jim Hanks, who does the voice for all the video games. <laughs> Jim Hanks? <Yeah. laughs> no, he's real. It, Tom Tom Hanks has a brother. Oh, and it's called Jim Hanks? Yeah. Oh, interesting. And he does the voice for all of the Toy Story spin-off stuff. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh. The real is a homage to the actors saying... We love you guys. We love what you've done mm. in the first two. We'd really love you to come back. And the homage to the audience is giving Andy this finale, having him hand over the toys. We get to see him mm. playing with them for one last time. And there's a closure. There's an ending. And there's a sense of a new beginning. Yeah. I mean, I mean it kind of just ties it up in a little nice bow. And I think that the beats that it goes through at the the last five minutes which is you know the passing of the baton so first we have woody's final decision he decides he's going to stay with the toys which is you great have, that he picks the group over andy right and so we see the maturity in his whole arc in three films and then you have uh the passing of the baton like you mentioned earlier uh how andy has one last playtime with the toys as he gives them to to Bonnie. So you have that beat. And then the final beat, which is that of letting go, uh, which is when, you know, he realizes that Woody's there. Well, just when he says goodbye, I think when he gets mm-hmm. back in the car and, you know, I think there's a moment where it just kind of hits him that he just gave away all his favorite toys. You know, I think it hits him how. And that he won't need them. And uh, we as an audience go on this journey with, with Andy that, we have to realize we don't need them anymore, but there are others that do. That there is, there's always going to be this continuity in life, the, the circle of life, as it were, that yes. it's going to keep going. But we're in a new stage now, and we get to reflect on that. And a sense of gratitude, because he says, um, thank you guys, or something along those lines, where he actually shows appreciation for what they did for him, and what they did for his imagination his creativity like him growing up as a as a kid i think uh and then then that that cuts to woody who you know says something like so long partner so he's also saying goodbye so you have these two characters who are essentially breaking up in a way you know Mm -hmm. in their own one has outgrown the other yeah and i think they both kind of have you know i think yeah that's that's the beauty of the ending is finally Woody has outgrown Andy after from I I think the quote I read from page 12 of the original Toy Story it's always been about Andy and suddenly we're there after all these years after all this character development he can finally move on yeah 
um it, it it's it really does become that and it hits us really hard i think everyone i've talked to really feels this because like you say we grew up with this with these characters and for a lot of us i think it felt like a personal rite of passage in our mind of like saying goodbye to our own innocence our own childhood and just going on to the next phase in our life and i think that's such a universal theme yeah for for our generation a lot of us had buzz light years or woodies i had woody for sure yeah he was my favorite toy for like a couple years exactly definitely. this film added new toys to the canon that, mm -hmm. that weren't there before yeah and kids of our generation had them yeah and i and i love the final shot which is when they it, it sort of pans up to the sky and then you have these white fluffy clouds yep. that perfectly matches yeah perfect ending i don't know why there's a four but i, I i'm sure it's great I, I hear it's great so yeah we're really looking forward to yeah seeing toy story 4 reading the script to that and hopefully at some point we'll get to do an episode on that to, to complement this one but i think we're happy to leave it here it's it's been great revisiting this franchise and yeah and we like doing different things every every week so we've, yeah. we've gone through quite a an array of films recently but toy story 3 i think is a modern classic family friendly classic especially and i just have so much appreciation for what these story you know these storytellers did with toys you know how it was able to create this sort of powerfully emotional journey and it's at the end of the day they're just plastic toys but you realize that that's not really what's driving the story it's like character and choices and themes and how they package that all together i think it's a great lesson for screenwriting and storytelling in general yep i highly recommend taking the time to read this one or revisit the film think about how it's structured mm -hmm. think about why it works and to try and incorporate some of this stuff into our own writing. Yeah, Absolutely. definitely. Yeah. Cool. Okay, and that's it for this week. <laughs>